it doesn't work. Oh my goodness. Well, good morning. Welcome to our Sunday School class. I am very happy to be back and able enough to teach again. As much as I love George Grant, I want to be here. I don't want George Grant up here. We watched him last week. Today, we are talking about, you might as well turn to Exodus 3 while we're at it, while I give this introduction. We are continuing on contemporary issues. These were the issues that were voted upon by the class to talk about things that are going on today. And the issue that we are going to be speaking about is critical race theory and intersectionality, the woke gospel. Any of those words ring a bell. They are, we were just talking to Carolyn here, like this is not stuff that they talked about when she was younger. And you go to any modern day university, campus, even public high school, and what you get pretty much all day every day is some form of CRT, woke gospel, intersectionality. So we're going to talk a little bit about this. And what I have delineated it down to is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, your way of understanding scripture. That's the positive side that we're going to deal with. And the reason is because these other ideas, critical race theory, intersectionality, we're going to have to do some work. Is this, here's the big question for the class, is it just a tool, these things, or are they a worldview? That's what we're going to get at. And I'm not going to ask you right now to tell me what critical race theory and intersectionality are. I will give you some definitions. But it comes down to hermeneutics. How do you understand what this book is saying? How do you understand your lens of the world? How do I interpret what's going on? That's what it comes down to. So in Exodus 3, we're going to read. Uh, let's start at verse 16. We got this account. Obviously, this is the time when the Israelites are being uh, subjected to slavery in Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years. They're going to be building Pharaoh's houses, building Pharaoh's cities, and all of that. And they are, they're being oppressed. Verse 16, God's talking to Moses. He's calling Moses. He says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewel gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So the Lord has been 
is going to do what he says, compel them by a mighty hand. What is he referring to? How, what's he going to compel them with? Plagues. He's going to put ten plagues upon the people of Egypt, displaying his wrath, displaying his glory, displaying his majesty, that Pharaoh is not king. God is king. So he's going to do a power display over in Egypt. Ten of these things before, before Pharaoh and the Egyptians have had enough. And he's saying, by the time you guys are ready to leave, they're going to be giving you gold and clothing and silver. Like you're, They're going to give you stuff just to get you out of here. Like, we've had enough of you. Get out. There's probably more going on there too. But now let's, let's pick up that story in Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12, so now God's afflicted the Egyptians and we're about, to, we're about to see everything that God just said was going to happen, happens. Amazing how that works. <clears throat> Verse 33 of chapter 12. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. The Egyptians have had enough. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And then they proceeded. They got uh, down in verse 39. Because they were thrust out of Egypt, could, uh, could not wait. They hadn't prepared any provisions. So they, they got thrown out in haste. Get out of here. Now, the Egyptians wanted them out. I mean, they, they talk about how scared they are. We're all going to die. Look at the ten plagues that have happened. The firstborn in all the land of the Egyptians are dead. But there's going to be more coming. We've had enough. Get them out. And I think the other thing, you have a whole people group for 400 years enslaved by the Egyptians... And God's going to give them favor, and the Egyptians are going to give possessions, give all this nice stuff to the Israelites. I think that the Egyptians probably realized over time that what we're doing to them, this ain't it. This isn't right. Not only that, but the Israelites were strong in the land at one point. Where did the Egyptians get all of these possessions and fine things? They would have taken them eventually from the Hebrews. From the Israelites, when they no longer had favor in Pharaoh's eyes, they would have taken from them back. So when God gives them favor, God's basically given them back what was originally the Israelites, what belonged to them. And then the other cool part about that, later in Exodus, God's going to start telling them, I want you to build the tabernacle like this, and all of this is going to be gold. And how do they get the gold? These slaves for 400 years, where do they get the gold from to build the tabernacle that God tells them to build? It was the stuff from the Egyptians from before. Aaron, the priest, is going to say, give me, give me the jewelry, give me the stuff. And he then molds that and fashions it into the tabernacle. So God's looking forward. He knows you're going to plunder the Egyptians because it's going to build the tabernacle. You were building his cities. You're going to build my tabernacle now with their resources. Pretty cool story. Resources that really were the Israelites to begin with. But interesting story. Really cool. You read the Bible with just... Solid hermeneutics. What does the author mean by his words? You know, I want to know what does Moses mean when he's telling this story? It's about the Hebrews. It's about the Egyptians. It's about God. What does it mean in his context? 
well, I mean, it's not 2022. Like, this is way back in 1400 BC, depending on when you date it. Technology is different. The timing is different. All of that. I, we got to know what's going on in the context. And then where does this fit in the overall narrative of Scripture, of covenant history? Well, we see this amazing story of God taking those who are oppressed, and the Lord is concerned with justice. So many times in the Old Testament, God is concerned with justice. And there's this amazing verse in Deuteronomy, I think it's 15, 13. You could have a Hebrew slave for six years, but what happened in the seventh year if you had a Hebrew slave? You remember? Release them. You got to let them go. For what? For what cost? Free. But not only do you have to let them go for free, there was another thing you had to do when you let the slave go. Do you remember? What did they have to do after they let the slave go? You got it, Jim. They were not to let them go empty-handed. They had to give them, I think it was an ox, a little bit of money, something like that. You're not to let them go empty-handed. On the seventh year, they go, give them a little bit of resources to get going, and that would be the end of that. God is concerned with justice. He is concerned with those who are, and we know this because he talks all the time about the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, how much God cares about that, the gleaning of the land. Farmers had to leave a little bit there for the poor to come after work hours and, and get their food. God wants a just society. Now, that, that makes sense with God's character because he justifies us. He takes people who are lowly, poor in spirit, out of just out of any type of deserving of goodness, and he bestows goodness on us. He's the ultimate picture of justice. So that's, re that, that's really nice. And we think about the narrative of the Bible. God makes everything. He makes it good. Mankind falls into sin. We, we're marred. We, creation becomes marred. God puts the curse, but he also institutes the plan of redemption. He's going to redeem everything that is cursed. Man descends deeper and deeper into sin. God raises the patriarchs. He chooses Israel as his vehicle for redeeming the world. God is going to raise prophets. He's going to raise priests. He'll raise kings. Agents of revelation and leadership. Because the time of redemption is drawing near. At the right time, the Father sends Jesus Christ, the agent of redemption and king, to defeat sin and the devil, save and empower his church, and reconcile the world back to himself, unifying his covenant people. Does this sound like the narrative of the scriptures? Kind of where the Bible goes? And now, after Christ does his mission, the church is on mission, and we're expanding until the fullness of the kingdom comes, and Christ uh, comes in glory, comes in the end. That's about the narrative of Scripture, right? What if I told you that Exodus 3, Exodus 12, is really about how white Westerners are Egypt, and anybody who is a sexual minority or a racial minority are the Hebrews, and we need to learn from this story that we are oppressing the minorities of today, that we are basically the oppressors and holding them as slaves. Is that a proper way to handle Exodus 3 and Exodus 12? See, this is why it's ultimately about hermeneutics. That is legitimately an article I read this past week where somebody was making the case that in the West... The hegemonic power that is, what's the hegemonic power? The power that's up at the top, the powerful people, white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied, 
born in America or Canada, so you're not, you're not from another country. You're the man. You're the powerful. And if you're not the man, you are oppressed. And you are underneath the systems of oppression that are just benefiting the man. And so what we read in Exodus 3, and it's not really about Hebrews and, and Egypt. What you're supposed to learn is that if you are born in this system, you are born with privilege. You are Egypt. You're not, you're not the Hebrew. You're not the slave. You are privileged. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much you had to work for what you have. If you have the characteristics of the hegemonic power, you are an oppressor. You are born with power. And the others don't have it. Oh, one more thing. You're racist. Yeah, you're born. If you're a part of the hegemonic power, you are born racist. You might look at me like I'm talking crazy talk right now, but this is legitimately what is taught on university campuses and elementary schools. Every day, Ryan whispers because he can't talk. What a great morning. Can't talk. <laughs> Love you, Ryan. That's right. This type of stuff is commonly taught. It is the main narrative. Do you remember two weeks ago when I showed you that Tim Challey's article about educating children? Do you remember what Tim Challey's youngest daughter was taught in her final English class in high school, grade 10 English? They read one book. Imagine, in English class, you read one book, and it was on the subject of racism, and what did they spend the rest of the semester doing, according to the daughter? Any memory of that? Dissecting Kendrick Lamar lyrics, a hip-hop artist. And his daughter wanted to write an essay about some of the Christian undertones of some of the stuff in the music, and she was told, no, you can't talk about that. You can only talk about his experience as a black American. So I ask the question that I asked in the beginning. Is all of this type of talk about race, oppression, privilege, is it a tool or is it a worldview? We will return to that. I'm going to talk about woke for a second. You heard about being woke, get woke before? It is a blanket term to describe somebody who is awake to social issues involving minorities and marginalized people groups. Have you heard the acronym BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C? It stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, BIPOC. So it, the minorities and marginalized people groups of BIPOC, homosexuals, trans, disabled, immigrants, religious minority, the list can go on. Anything that sets you up as a marginalized person. So when you're awake to the issues involving these communities, that is how you become woke. Now it is notoriously difficult to pin down because there isn't a defined standard. You remember J.K. Rowling? 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 Rowling. She's the author of Harry Potter. She is a feminist as feminists can come. Very big on how gender is basically a, she won't go as far as to say a complete social construct or anything, but women need empowerment. Women have always been oppressed by men. She is a feminist as feminists can be. But she does not support transgenderism. So this sets up a really awkward thing for those on the far left. 
uh, those on the social justice side. Because you have a lady who has been very feminist her whole life, decades, but she doesn't support biological boys calling themselves girls. That's against the idea of feminism. And so she got... She was getting all kinds of calls about how abusive her language is, how hurtful she is, how she's now perpetuating the narrative of the hegemonic powers. Words that you never would have used before, but now we use them. And she based, in, in many ways, she tried, people tried to cancel her. It's, it's awkward, like what's the standard? She's a feminist, but some of the people on this side are eating her because she doesn't go far enough. It's, really, it's hard to pin this stuff down. <clears throat> The history of being woke is, uh, is long and complicated. So I, I, there's no way I can do it full justice in a class like this. But as we know it today, it derives as an offshoot of classical liberalism's goals in the civil rights movement and since. Think about the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. What were they fighting for? What did they, what did they want? Equal opportunity. Equal opportunity, yeah. What else? Or maybe I should frame it a different way. How were they going to get equal opportunity? Legally speaking, how do you achieve equal opportunity? I know it's a tough question. But... Dill? Removal of Jim Crow laws? Removal of Jim Crow laws, that helps for sure. Demanding it. Demanding it, yeah, you're not asking anymore. You're demanding and you're, you're going to do nonviolent protest was a big part of it. Okay, so where it reflects how you achieve your equal opportunity was through anti-discrimination laws. The passing of laws that state you are not allowed to discriminate anymore based on race, on gender, on uh, whatever. The different type of status is no more discrimination. Anyone can get the job if they're qualified. Anyone can go to the university if they're qualified, all that type of stuff. That was classic liberalism's goals. And a lot of Christians were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, many Christians would say, yeah, that's, that's logical. That, that seems to fit. Nothing wrong with that. Anti-discrimination laws are on the books. That was, so that's true in both America, that's true in Canada, that's true in Western Europe. And then you have some over in the civil rights and the activist movements who said, wait, this actually wasn't what we want. This doesn't solve the problem. Uh, like you remember Martin Luther King. What did he say that he wanted his children to be defined by? Not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their hearts was his words. Like, stop looking at, stop looking at race. Stop looking at skin color. Like, I don't want my children judged by skin color. I want them judged by the content of their heart, by, by their character. That, that's classic liberalism's goal. And we even have the term today that we're, we're kind of supposed to be colorblind in a way. It doesn't matter what color, how much melanin's in your skin. It, it doesn't matter. We're, we're all really one race anyway in Adam, uh, whatever Adam's skin color was. We're all really one race. So anyway, that was classic liberalism's goal. But then the activist side said that's not far enough because this society has, is so built in such a way that the underlying systems are only allowing the hegemonic power to be at the top. White, male, heterosexual, all, all the things I talked about before. The systems are designed only for the man to rise up. 
And so we might have anti-discrimination laws, but all that does is help the man stay in power because there is inherent racism, systemic racism in place that is keeping any minority, BIPOC, sexual minority, down. I remember uh, a women's march happened a few years ago. These women's marches were really big a few years ago. And... Uh, an apologist's daughter went to this women's march. Yeah, 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 smash the patriarchy, smash the patriarchy. She goes up, she finds groups of women, and she just asks, being video recorded, hey, I hear you're at the women's march. What are you here for? Yeah, we're here to end the patriarchy. Okay, great, great, great. Well, where is the patriarchy so that I can go smash it too? Can you point me to where the patriarchy is? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, then they just move on. Nobody can answer the question. Where's the patriarchy? I want to fight it. You can say that too. Where is the systemic racism? What are the law? Show me the law on the book. Show me the. Show me where. Give me the data. Like, let me end the systemic oppression with you. Because uh, it's an idea. It's an idea first. You're looking for an ethereal system. It's hard to pin down this stuff. There's a lot more that can be said. I know. I can't do full treatment of this. To become woke, you need to embrace the idea of critical theory, uh, specifically critical race theory and intersectionality. Now, critical theory, again, it's tough to pin this stuff down, but it's essentially you are upending whatever the fundamental ground of a subject is. So it's various things. There's critical gender theory, critical race theory. There's different types of critical theory. So if the agreed upon idea of gender, you're born male, you got male reproductive parts, you're a, you're a guy. Same thing with the girl. Critical gender theory says, wait, 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 wait. Our way of understanding gender is all wrong. That's not how we should understand gender. It should actually be more like the identity that you have inside and you can be a different gender trapped in, a, in the other body and, and you gotta come out to your true identity. So critical theory is trying to upend whatever the fundamental idea of something is, and that happens with race. <clears throat> so critical race theory is starting to think critically, upending our ideas about race. And that's how you end up getting to their systems of oppression and privilege, and we have to overcome your, the inherent racism in the system, the systems of oppression that are keeping minorities down. The end goal of it is to eliminate racism. That's the end goal. There is a utopia in the end of it. I think we see a little bit of it in Marvel's movie Black Panther, where it kind of pictures this idea. There's no racism anymore. We've eliminated racism. That's kind of the, the end paradise of it, because racism's everywhere, and we have to eliminate it. Obviously, I'm speaking from the perspective of trying to explain this. I'm not saying I agree with everything I'm saying. And then intersectionality is an important part of this too. Now where does CRT come from? CRT began in earnest in legal circles, the way, the way we understand it from legal circles. Activists, legal scholars, and lawyers were publishing books about the fundamental racism that provides all of Western society, particularly American society. There is oppressor and there is oppressed. And the oppressor is born in his or her privilege and is inherently racist. In 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw, she's the one who published Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex. That, at, that, what she published in 1989 is what launched it to become popular. 
uh, intersectionality entered our dictionaries when she talked about the intersection of race and sex. And the ideas have caught cultural attention like wildfire ever since then. Who are these types of scholars, these, these activists? They are self-professed postmodernists. I'm using big words. I'm going to ask Roger to explain that in a second, if you're good for it. Postmodernists who adhere to the standpoint hypothesis of knowledge. Roger, would you do us the honor of telling us what postmodernism is in a minute? Uh, postmodernism was an attempt to make sense of the failures of modernism. And modernism was the void that was created after the age of enlightenment, or what's often called the age of reason. And so they thought, man, if we could just master science, reason, and rationality, we'll solve all of our problems. Mm. That didn't turn out so well. So that left a void. good example of that is to look at a wartime house. That's modernism. Mm. Blah. Not much to say about it. And so it led to something called postmodernism. And in that scenario, there is no grand narrative at all. Just a bunch of micro narratives. Hmm. Postmodernism says that the grand narrative of everything is really coming from within you. You have a truth based on your experience and that is the truth by which each person is going to then live by. So this is how you end up getting I know I'm born looking like a, like a boy but I might not actually be male. Because the truth isn't about the grander narrative of these are fixed genders. Postmodernists, you're not, there's no objective standard to this. It's the experience that you have inside yourself as the method of truth and epistemology. So standpoint epistemology or the standpoint hypothesis of truth is whatever your standpoint is, that is your understanding of truth. So this is where if you are a woman, you can give birth to babies, amazing. But if you're a man, you can't give birth to babies. You can't say anything about childbirth, about whether what's in the womb has status, is a person. You're not a woman. You don't get to say. You're not in that standpoint. If you are a homosexual, you get to talk about homosexuality. But if you're straight, you can't talk about homosexuality. You don't have that identity. It's not your standpoint. See how postmodernist that is? It's not an objective framework of where things can be objectively right or wrong, true or false. It's based on your standpoint. It's all based on your personal experience. And so the CRT uh, lawyers and activists are self-professed postmodernists who adhere to the standpoint hypothesis. This is why if you are a white person, you can say... I. I'm not racist. I don't have internal, inherent, systemic racism inside of me. Like, yeah, you do. You're born with it. You, you don't see how racist you are. You're white. You're, you've been benefiting from this system for decades. You're, you're not a minority. You don't know how racist you are. So that's why it can say, it's like, I'm not. No, no, you are. Like, that's why you can get there, because it's postmodernist in, in terms of how it's developed. That's important uh, because while they'll see race and gender as social constructs, they, do, they don't actually believe that there is gender. 
Like, that's why, again, born male, you can be female. Because it's not, a, it's, it's just a social construct. Whatever male and female is, race, it's all been designed to keep certain people at the top and powerful. So they believe that it's all social constructions, but they also see those constructed categories as being the lens by which people live. So yeah, sexuality is just, a, or gender is just a social construct, but you have to live in a system where maleness and femaleness matters. So it doesn't, it's not a real thing, but you're going to interpret your world through a male or a female lived experience. Are you bored of this stuff yet? <laughs> so it is a lens by which you then live, and it's helpful to, to understand that. It's informing your oppression or your privilege. And you're one of those things. You're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. You either have privilege or you are oppressed. I have a quick video I want to show you. Maybe this will help us understand it, so I'm not the only one trying to describe this. This is Vody Bauckham. So, what do these guys give us? A number of things. Namely, critical theory. Have you heard the idea of critical race theory? It's a grandchild of the Frankfurt School. Political correctness. Multiculturalism. Any of these things celebrate? So as a result of these ideologies, we have all been taught over time, through our media, through our educational systems, to view ourselves not as part of a whole, but as part of subgroups. As part of subgroups who in some way, shape, fashion, or form are being oppressed by the hegemonic power that rules and governs our culture. And so even when we talk about elections, we don't talk about this person is ahead in the polls by this much, that person is it? No. This person is ahead with red-handed, left-handed white people from the South, while this person is getting the vote of second-generation migrant workers with eczema. Why do we talk like that? Why do we think about politics that way? Why do we think about each other that way? Why do ideas like intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 gain such popularity that people use it like like we know what it is. By the way, if you don't know what intersectionality is, just what's the hegemonic power? White, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born American people. That's the man, right? You ever heard that saying, you know, the man keeping us down? 
That's the man. And by the way, the list could go on and on and on. Intersectionality, in a nutshell, basically is the idea that to the degree that you don't have those things, you are oppressed. And so if you are male, heterosexual, cisgendered, right, native-born, American, able-bodied, um, by the way, also attractive. There's pretty privilege, too, by the way. Um, if you are all those things, but you're not white, right, then you, your oppression is limited to this area. But what if you're not white, but you're also not male? Now, that place where your not-whiteness and your not-maleness intersects is where you feel the weight of your oppression. But what if you're not white and not male and not heterosexual? Well, now the oppression is even worse on you because you have these three intersections of oppression. What if you're not white, not male, not heterosexual, and not cisgender? Ooh. So now you are a black, trans, male, lesbian, anyway, you're <laughs> now there are four intersections of oppression, right? Well, if you're not white, and you're not male, and you're not heterosexual, and you're not cisgendered, and you're not able-bodied. <clears throat> Or you're not a native-born American. You're an immigrant. Or you're not a... You see, intersectionality says that the level of oppression and the kind of oppression that you experience combines itself in these areas and layers itself in these areas, these intersections, if you will. not a grown-up expression of cultural Marxism. Okay. <clears throat> the million-dollar question. <clears throat> is CRT, is intersectionality, is being woke simply a tool for understanding people or a worldview by which everything is interpreted? There's a difference there. I put in front of you, on your table, Resolution 9 from the Southern Baptist Convention. This was back in 2019. On the in the General Assembly, from the floor, they adopted Resolution 9, which talks about this a little bit. I'm just going to read a couple parts. You can read the whole thing if you want. Whereas concerns have been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and intersectionality, and Number two, this is the important one. Whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society, and intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. We'll stop there. Later on it's going to say, Scripture's true, the stuff can't overcome Scripture, all that. But you have, according to the Southern Baptist Convention's understanding of intersectionality and critical race theory, they are analytical tools. At least according to this resolution, that's all it is. 
It's just a tool to understand people and their experience. Based on what we've talked about, is that really true? Does the Southern Baptist Convention have a good grasp of what these ideologies are? Or is it the product of people who are learning a new type of language of how young people are disseminating these ideas and there's not a full grasp on the power of these types of ideologies. I have a book here, Critical Theories, except they crossed out critical and it's cynical theories. It's a pretty interesting book. There's a chapter on it on racism and the chapter is called Ending Racism by Seeing It Everywhere. Which I think is a fascinating title. How are you going to end? Anyway, <clears throat> I want to read a, a little paragraph here. It should be pretty easy to understand, but I'll, I'll clarify. The section is called The Caste System of Social Justice. Because of its internal complexity and single-minded focus on oppression, intersectionality is riddled with divisions and subcategories which exist in competition with, or even unrepentant contradiction to, each other. Some people in the United States therefore argue that gay white men and non-black people of color, generally assessed as marginalized groups, need to recognize their privilege and anti-blackness. This can lead to the insistence that lighter-skinned black people recognize their privilege over darker-skinned black people. Straight black men have been described as the white people of black people. It is also not uncommon to hear arguments that trans men, that is women who want to try to be men, while still oppressed by attitudes toward their trans status, need to recognize that they have ascended to male privilege and amplify the voices of trans women, who are men, being women who are seen as doubly oppressed by being both trans and women. Gay men and lesbians might well find themselves not considered oppressed at all, particularly if they're not attracted to trans men or trans women, respectively, which is considered a form of transphobia and misgendering. How fun does this sound to study, by the way? You see how there can just be unrepented of contradictions in this stuff. Depending, when you view the world through identities and, and your and things like that, it becomes so confusing. And you, how do you even live when, you, when, when this is the way that it is? So is it a tool or is it a worldview? Sounded more like it. Then why is it spreading in churches? He whispered, you probably couldn't hear him, because they're not Christian churches. <laughs> there are church there are places that call themselves churches that teach this stuff every week. Some say it is just a way to more deeply understand people in their backgrounds. But is that all it is? Because I would be interested in knowing what are the differences in terms of uh, if all things are equal, if a white man and a black man apply for a job, all things being equal, are they given equal opportunity for that job? They should. They should. But what if the data says that 99 out of 100 times it's going to go to the white guy? I would be interested to know that, actually. But the data doesn't say that. 
you're going to try to find any data you can to try to interpret it in the light of oppression and oppressor, oppressed and oppressor. Again, tool or worldview. But the data does say in America specifically, why are immigrants from India, Africa, other nations are more successful when they come to America than the black-born Americans that are there? Why are you only oppressed in America if you're born there, but the black people coming from Africa who work their butt off, they're more successful? Go look at the stats. You have more successful business people who are of other nations than native-born Americans. Why? Only oppression happens in America, nowhere else in the world. If you have a biracial couple, so the wife is white, so she's oppressing her husband, that's dumb. And all this trans stuff. When you die, honey, when they dig up your bones, you either have a male or female pelvis. We don't know what trans anything you were. That's all it is. They are confusing people to the nth degree. And it's a religion. This is beyond people live this day in, day out. It is, it's, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And they are teaching this elementary school level. Just so all of you know, if you don't have your kids in public school, this is on the daily PD meet. Yeah, even in Catholic school, professional development meetings, this is crammed down teachers' throats. You gotta push this stuff like crazy. You, you, you don't take this seriously. Just think about it for a second. For your children, for your grandchildren. There's only two, according to the school board and our government, there's only two and a half people in this room right now that are considered minorities. The rest of you are oppressors and privileged. All of you and all your kids and all your grandkids, except two and a half people in here, me, my dad, one other person, are considered minorities. Everyone else in here is an oppressor and fully privileged. And your children and your grandchildren and your bad people. Every day, this is what you're taught. So if you think this is funny, your children and grandchildren are the bad people, besides two and a half people in here right now. It's insane. It's insane. Emily, you used a word, which is an exact word that I want to use on this, and this is where I'm going. Think about CRT, intersectionality, woke. It has a set of beliefs and a, world, and a lens by which we view things. Oppressed oppressor, inherent racism, privilege. There's a fundamental division of people as racist and anti-racist. Isn't that kind of akin to saved and unsaved, how we divide people? There's an eschatological hope, the end of racism, the, the end goal of all this. There's prophets and seemingly sacred writings at the top. Kimberly Crenshaw, Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Top seller. His other books. Stamped. Racism, anti-racism, and you. His other book, Anti-Racist Baby. His other book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. They have a concept of an internal, hopeless malady inside called inherent racism. Isn't that kind of like original sin? They have a particular special history. All history is viewed from the lens of suffering and oppression of minorities. Doesn't scripture have a particular special history? They have blasphemy laws. No stepping out of approved beliefs or challenging others' experiences. J.K. Rowling. They have a higher allegiance. You're supposed to view your nation as inherently racist. You're supposed to rise above your nation. Kneel at the anthem. They have excommunication through cancel culture. Put the system together and what you have 
is an alternate religion. You use that word. It's a religion. An entire identity by which you view everything. What is that if not a religion? Of course, what does it not have that, that true and pure religion does have? Truth, yeah. What else? A savior. A savior. Grace. Grace. It doesn't have grace. All you have to do is recognize your privilege and amplify other people's voices because you're inherently racist till you die. It's got no grace. You can't make up for what happened 200 years ago, 150 years ago. You can't give enough reparations back. You can't repent enough of your racism. There's no grace. One final paragraph I'll read, and I'm at the end here. Also from this book, he's going to talk about why, does, why is this problematic? The, poor, the core problems with CRT is that it puts social significance back into racial categories and inflames racism. Tends to be purely theoretical, uses the postmodern knowledge and political principles, is profoundly aggressive, asserts its relevance to all aspects of social justice, and not least, begins from the assumption that racism is both ordinary and permanent everywhere and always. Consequently, every interaction between a person with a dominant racial identity and one with a marginalized one must be characterized by a power imbalance. The job of the theorist or activist is to draw attention to this imbalance, often described as racism or white supremacy, in order to begin dismantling it. It also sees racism as omnipresent and eternal, which grants it a mythological status, like sin or depravity. It's not a Christian guy. He's, he's recognizing this. Because the member of the marginalized racial group is said to have a unique voice and a counter-narrative that, under theory, must be regarded as authoritative to the degree that it is theoretically authentic, postmodern knowledge principle, there is no real way to dispute her reading of the situation. Therefore, everything the marginalized individual interprets as racism is considered racism by default. In an epistemy that encourages confirmation bias and leaves wide open the door to the unscrupulous. Basically, and then final sentence, in scholarship this leads to theories built only upon theories and upon theory and no real means of testing or falsifying them. Is this a, just a tool as the Southern Baptist Convention says? No, it's not. Last thing I'll read and then we're actually done is Galatians chapter 3. Let's go to the New Testament. You've heard this verse, no doubt, dozens of times. But Galatians chapter 3 really is such a joy for Christians. 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Identity is defined by God first. Reality is defined by God. Prophets, sacred writings, our inherent issues, special history, blasphemy laws, excommunication, allegiance, everything is supposed to be viewed through the lens of God, 
through the scriptures, not by our external identities and distinctions. CRT and woke thinking is antithetical to the gospel because its entire view comes from another source. So be careful with this stuff. Any final comment? It's 1018. Yes, Mark. And those who worship at the altar Funny how that works. Vodi Bauckham wrote a book called Fault Lines, and I'd recommend it. Fault Lines. Vodi Bauckham wrote that. Very good. You can pick it up from a lot of different... He's a guy that we listen to here. Um, all about this stuff, if you have any interest in it. All right, let's pray. I thank you, Lord, that our identity is in you, that in Christ you wash away everything external, and you unify us into your kingdom. I ask that you would help us be aware of what matters eternally, to be able to rise above just whatever the language is of the day and be mostly focused on your kingdom. Let us be effective witnesses to our culture, which is confused and is moving away continually and aggressively from your revelation, from your standard. And now prepare our hearts for worship. Let us have thankfulness and gladness in our hearts as we worship on this Lord's Day. Amen.